Hi, welcome. Welcome to Leave a Message. This is my podcast, and Janet's here with me. We're going to continue on our storytelling adventure. I do want to say one thing, though, after listening back to the last episode, we we find humor in our stories that are related to living, you know, in a way consumed by, you know, drugs and alcohol and in the culture. I don't want to call it a lifestyle or a culture, but when we were at that time in our lives, looking back on it now, we see some humor in the story. And I just want to say that we both are in recovery every day, practicing recovery. We take it really seriously. We're not laughing at people in that situation or even laughing at ourselves. Well, we are laughing at ourselves in that situation, but I think we have the right to do that. And I just want to say, you know, in the work that we do, I don't we don't, I don't use terms such as drug addict or junkie or anything like that. And I said it in this in the conversation last time. And just please know that I'm mindful. We're mindful of destigmatizing this population and ourselves and whatever. But we're just trying to have fun and, you know, just two friends reminiscing and, and trying to shine some light on how you get from point A to point B and, and what the what that traveling looks like for human beings in that situation. So, yeah, if you want to say anything about that. Well, I, w- I would add that I think the fact that we can find it funny or find it humorous, some of the darkest points in my life I can find humor in, really speaks to the recovery right? Like I don't, I'm not, I'm no longer ashamed of it. I no longer think of it as secrets or stories I wish no one would hear. I mean, the idea that we're even doing this podcast and being really like open with some stories that would make you very unpopular or like maybe (laughs) not even be able to hold a job if people knew about this, these tales from the past, right? That that, that speaks to like, yeah. That speaks to the recovery and not only like our recovery, but the the fact that recovery is possible, that that I don't have to hide from those stories. And not only that, like we can tell them in a way and remember them in a way that we can see the humor in them instead of just the darkness. Right. But I will say at the time... They were not funny. They were not funny. No, I didn't find any humor in my life at that time. Mm-hmm. And what we know now is that you know, tragedy plus time equals comedy. So Mm -hmm. looking back on difficult events and finding a little humor in there. And there's a thing that we say in AA about, you know, we're not a glum lot. We're just, you know, make it fun. If if newcomers could see no, nothing funny or humorous about our life, they wouldn't want it. Yeah. Right. So yes, I think that speaks to recovery. Yeah. Speaks to the miracle. Mm hmm. So Is there anything else we wanted to say at the beginning of this one that we learned? learned Well, we did learn that we we don't have the same equipment. And my audio, we got feedback was sounded worse or sounded doesn't sound as good compared to yours. And I will say that the the mic is in the mail. We're hoping to fix that quickly. But we are aware. Yep, I know. I know that drives you nuts because you are a very technologically advanced human being and you like all the newest, latest 
fancy equipment and look how the tables have turned. I have (laughs) one thing fancier than you. Killing me. I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying it. Where did we leave off in the story? I feel like we left off. You had gotten clean, gotten parted ways with King Baby, Beanie Baby. Beanie Baby. But here's what I think would be fair. Yeah. Is so we have had a relationship that is like weaves in and out, right? Like there are times where we were seeing each other regularly and then times where one of us was like missing or not, we were not seeing each other. Yes. MIA. Yes. Right. I am. Okay. So what I think would be interesting is for you to m- match my story of, okay, so I saw you because you were a customer. Well, mostly I saw your boyfriend <laughs> because you were a customer. What's his, what's my boy, what's my boyfriend's moniker, nickname? I think we decided, I think we, I think we decided to call him Fun Bunny. Fun Bunny. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Let me okay, make a note so, of that so we can, I have a <laughs> I tracker for all of the <laughs> yeah. characters, the players mm-hmm. who were yeah. trying to just be respectful and protect their privacy or identity they can yeah come forward if they want to and it's going to be a fun it'll be a game everybody wants to guess we even got people guessing last time about who the person was who moved in your apartment after beanie baby baby moved out someone that we Mm -hmm. both were friends with and we didn't Mm -hmm. think of a nickname for that person i don't think we need one i don't think are they going to come up again claire Bit player. No, I don't think they. <laughs> no offense, but. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we have Beanie Baby, and now we have. And we have Fun, Fun Bunny. Bunny. Okay. Okay, so Fun Bunny was a Fun Bun. Fun Bun. Fun Bun. <laughs> Fun Bunny was a customer, and then you know I told the story of like what happened to me from there into us seeing each other again at Doctor Queen. Doctor Queen. So what I think would be interesting to me is what is the in-between for you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Gosh, if only I had any recollection of that time. Just kidding. (laughs) Let me see what happened. So I was living with Fun Bunny. We started, we got together when I was 21 and started living together immediately. He was in a band that rhymes with fun bunny which is why we chose fun bunny and he was gone a lot they were you know they were just starting out and they were putting out records on sub pop and that's when sub pop really was sending a lot of bands to europe probably for the first time probably fun bunny was the first band to really do a big european whatever so i had a i was in a relationship but the person was you know for all intents and purposes missing yeah yeah so i'd go to you know Christmas parties by myself. I mean, I had friends who didn't even believe he existed because he was just gone. And that's the person that I started using heroin with and became dependent on How heroin. did, what was that day? What was, what happened on that day? Do you remember? <laughs> like, how does one go from right. not using heroin you cross to the using line, heroin? yeah. Right. Well, I had started using weed. I started smoking weed when I was, I think, the summer before fifth grade. So however old you are then, 11. 12, I don't know, young, like a little kid. And then over the course of my life, I just began using whatever came across my desk, you know, like just whatever was available. So, you know, weed drinking, I started smoking cigarettes from pretty young. 
I don't even want to say how old I was when I started smoking cigarettes. And then, mm-hmm. I mean, you see a kid that age now, and it's just unbelievable. I mean, it happened. It happened to me, but I can't, I couldn't even fathom. Okay, by the time I meet him, I'm pretty full-fledged, you know, drinker, probably, you know, cocaine, ecstasy, acid. And I was out to dinner one night with him and my best friend, uh, woman we shall call we'll call her supermodel okay that it's a, it's appropriate it's yeah appropriate. and they had been talking we were all out to dinner one night and they had talking about how they both had done heroin before and how much they loved it and i really was you know kind of f- fakely kind of feigning you know shock and disgust and they made a plan to get some and use some together the next week or something like that. And I... <laughs> they scheduled it. They had a scheduled <laughs> heroin usage meeting. And I went to the bathroom and I remember being in that bathroom stall and just thinking, what is what is my move here? My best friend and my boyfriend, even though it's something that I'm just kind of inherently afraid of, I'm not sure why. Well, just, you know, society or TV shows or Quincy or whatever. And well, perhaps intuition. <laughs> perhaps. <laughs> and I just thought, how am I going to, I can't get rid of these people. I can't get rid of my boyfriend and my best friend. I'm going to have to just turn a blind eye and act like it doesn't bother me. Or I'm going to have to just go ahead and do it with them. So I decided <laughs> I was going to turn a blind eye and pretend it didn't bother me. And then the day came. And I was like, so when are we getting the stuff? You know, I was just on board without even realizing and just, you know, stuck mm-hmm. my arm out and there I was. And it occurred to me in a way like, oh, this is stu- this stuff is no big deal. I like this stuff. It reminded me of drinking like the codeine cough syrup when I was a kid and I had a bronchitis or something. And I just I remembered like, oh, I love this feeling. I love mm-hmm. opiates. And it just mm-hmm. feels like I'm home now. So, so our, you know, our relationship with... Fun Bunny, you know, my relationship, I lived with him. He was gone all the time. And he made the assumption that if he was out of town, I wasn't going to use. But, of course, (laughs) I used every day he was gone. Why would I not? I mean, I just found, you know, the solution to my pain, feeling uncomfortable. Yeah. So I think I was with him. I mean, I want to say two, between two and three years, which is a long time at that age. I mean, it was 21. So 21 to, let's say, 23 or something like that. And then he, like I said, his, his band was on Sub Pop. And we, you know, at that time in Seattle, that's what was happening. All of our friends were in bands and they were all starting to put out these records on Sub Pop and singles and stuff. And one night, the owners of the record label called up Fun Bunny and said, hey, we're thinking about putting out a single by this band from Aberdeen. Will you come down to the Vogue and check them out and let us know what you think? And Fun Bunny said, sure. So we went and that's the first time I saw Nirvana. I can't, I don't think I have to make up a name for that, do I? No, I mean, I... And became friends. And that's when, you know, we became friends with Kurt. And Kurt worshipped Fun Bunny because his band before Fun Bunny was a pretty well-known band that a lot of musicians were into. Yeah. So so then Kurt, yeah, Kurt just started showing up on our doorstep and hanging out, listening to records. And I started, you know, doing his hair and all this stuff that I did back then. I was a hairdresser, by the way. 
Mm-hmm. So something, you know, something started to happen to me. I was working at a big salon in Seattle, kind of a, it's sort of a, at that time it was considered kind of a higher end salon, but it was also kind of a chain. There was a series of them throughout the Northwest. And I just kept saying to Fun Bunny, I think we're drug addicts, you know, and he kept saying, <laughs> we're not. Mm. And I just decided one day that if I moved out and got away from him, that I could stop using heroin. All right. Association makes sense, right? I use Mm -hmm. with him. Yeah. So if I'm not with him, I don't use. Yeah. And so I moved in with my mom and. Did you guys break up or you just lived different places? We broke up and Mm -hmm. he didn't want, you know, he didn't want to, he didn't want me to move out. He didn't understand what was happening. And I don't know if I really did either, but I had the wherewithal to try to, like you, like you were saying, I just didn't want to be, you know, I'd gotten strung out a bunch of times. So I was, de- you know, dependent on using every day. And he kind of wasn't, you know, he would sort of dip in and out and he got to leave and be gone for back then. They would be he'd be gone for three months at a time. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so he didn't, you know, use when he was on tour. And I will say no one else in his band was used heroin. So that, and that's a very I mean, there were some people who could just be tourists. Right. Who just Mm -hmm. could come in and out of like heavy drug use and not end up doing it every day. Right. Who could just kind of take it or leave it, which was very, very confusing to me. Yeah. And I, I mean, I assumed either that was a skill that I had and I just didn't want to or like I didn't I didn't have that ability. I wasn't sure. I don't, I still don't know now which one is actually true of like, yeah. Did I just never want to quit or did I not have the power to quit or, mm-hmm. but the, the people that could kind of take it or leave it were very confusing to me. I wonder if it's, if it's like a, a brain chemistry consideration, like maybe they just create a lot of endorphins and serotonin on their own and they feel okay without it or some, I don't know. You know what I mean? I yeah. Don't. Yeah. Yeah. To maybe they just didn't have, maybe they just weren't so just like spiritually and emotionally traumatized before they started yeah. using and they just didn't need as much relief as, yeah. as some people needed. So I moved away. Well, not away. I moved out of the apartment with Fun Bunny and moved in with my mom. And then I just started, I quit my job at the salon and I just became kind of a person who hung out. Yeah. I became friends with a woman named Susie who was working for DGC, which was the record label that Nirvana eventually was on and the Posies and a bunch of other bands that we were friends with. And so she was the first person I ever knew who hadn't really had an expense account and just had a home office. And she just enjoyed having me around. We would just hang out every day. She had to go to radio stations and do stuff here and there. And she had to kind of like if a band from the label was in town, she would have to set up the meet and greet and I'd go to the, you know, I'd just to help her do her job and stuff and run some errands for her. And we would just smoke cigarettes and drink beer and go to shows at night. And are you using drugs? Not much. Drinking? Not much. Drinking. Yeah. Drinking a lot, smoking cigs, probably, you know, smoking pot. Did you miss Fun Bunny? Were you sad about that? I was, except for that he got a new girlfriend straight away. And mm-hmm. then he really did a pretty deep dive into heroin himself. So I did see him around. And we were, we maintained, we were friendly. Mm-hmm. 
You've always had that. You've always had that ability to to be like be friends with your exes until until recently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I I loved him, and it, I I feel like it was a really other than that, it was a really healthy, balanced, respectful relationship. I really liked being with him, and he was like pretty close to an ideal partner. And you know, for such for such young people. I mean, maybe that's the trick. Maybe it's better when you're younger. I don't know. I feel like my relationships have gotten progressively worse and worse, but that's probably on me. So he, I was just hanging out. And then, and also at that time, Kurt had broken up with his long-term girlfriend. And my brother actually became Nirvana's sound engineer and tour manager through a completely different channel, not because of me Mm -hmm. at all. Mm -hmm. All the musicians at that time worked at this place called Muzak. Yeah. My brother worked there, too. And he, my brother was a musician and sound engineer from, from high school. He was in a band. And so he had all the PA and knew how to run it all. So he started just doing sound for his friends' bands. And they all, you know, were connected. So, so I became really good friends with Kurt. And I started to... And also, Susie was working for his record label. So we were all just so young. You know, I was probably, what, 23, 20... 23 at the time and so was Kurt and so was Susie and so everybody like we were just young people doing that stuff and so that was in the late 80s I mean right still Mm -hmm. I'm still in the late 80s or maybe 90 or something like that and then and then I just gradually started using I gradually started using heroin again I I wasn't strung out though till you know later it took me longer I guess and I think that's really when I became friends with Danny yeah, when I became friends with Danny and everyone from, you know, a big group of people from Arizona had moved here mm-hmm. and I became friends with all of them, the Super Suckers, Eddie Spaghetti and Ron and Danny and Kelly Canary. And and then I don't know the events leading up to, oh, yes, I do. So for Christmas one year, must have been 92, 91, whenever Nirvana was on Saturday Night Live for the first time, I went to, Kurt gave me as a Christmas gift the trip to... New York to go see Nirvana on SNL. And by then I was really strung out. I remember mm-hmm. having to call our local dope dealer. Should, what are we calling him? Did we decide on Barracuda? Barracuda is good. Yeah. If you know, you know. Yeah. I called him. The, I called Barracuda the night before I was to fly to New York with Kurt's mother. And I bought in as much heroin from him as I could at the time for whatever money I had. Were you like, were you, I mean, I assume your plan is bring it with you, but were you nervous about traveling with drugs? Oh, no, no, no. I wasn't nervous about traveling with drugs. I just, I just didn't think I'd be able to hold on to them for that long. (laughs) Right. That I would do them all before I got to New York and then I'd have to buy some drugs in New York. Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's a long story that I'm going to skip over, but we'll get back to it at, at some point. I'm just trying to get to the point where I finally got clean. So I came back from... New York and had a falling out with Kurt, well, with Courtney. And Mm -hmm. everything was just getting real dark for me. You know, it was, I was living at my mom's. I was super strung out. I was just, I I didn't have any income. And Mm -hmm. I, I don't know, just something in my soul was just like, hey, go, you should give this a try. 
So I had my very first 12-step meeting I had gone to when I was living with Fun Bunny in the building we lived in. We had some other friends that lived in the same building. And one of them had, I think when Fun Bunny was out of town or something, I had gone to an A meeting with him. It was my first exposure. So then later on, after the New York trip, when things were just getting really dark for me, I just decided to kind of dip my toe in that pool. And I think that's when I came to Dr. Clean. I was just like, oh, I know he must have taken me to Dr. Clean because I knew where it was. So, yeah, I just decided, like, I don't know. It got it got dark and scary, you know, as you can imagine, in New York and in Seattle and whatever. And I was probably kind of stealing stuff to. Yeah. Or I don't know. I just didn't really have any money. I didn't have any income and. It just escalated probably back to, yeah, I might've gone to outpatient treatment too, to tell you the truth. I might've been in outpatient treatment somewhere and then also going to NA. You weren't in that Trexan program until later though, right? Like you didn't go immediately into that or did you, did you start taking Trexan? No, no. It was later. I think that was after Mason was born. Oh, were you like affiliated with, we're going to call him Pop-Tart. Like, when was that affiliation? Because he was there. I don't know who Pop-Tart is. I'd hold up a sign and tell me who Pop-Tart <laughs> is. Is that my um, son's okay. father? No. Oh. Um, okay. The <laughs> Does he the play son- tennis? Is he a tennis yeah. player? Okay. Well, yeah. yeah. Also, the subtext <laughs> of this whole podcast is <laughs> Carrie and Janet try to remember when things happened in time. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, honestly, it's to the best of my recollection, it is jumbled up. And like we said last time, a lot of stuff happened in a short amount of time for us back then. So, yeah, things, I it's say, hard to, it's hard to put the beads on the string of when things happened. Yeah, right. I don't, I, because no, I was in Trexan after Mason was a tiny toddler. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Mason. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Yeah, because Mason was like about eight months old when Kurt died, right? And that was 94. I mean, I think I went after that to Trexan. I think that's when I started kind of using again. And and then I got fully back into it after Kurt died and Mason Mm -hmm. was already born. So did I go to Trexan way later than you or did I go twice? I feel like it was like everyone in our friend group but you. And you were just kind of affiliated because it was everyone but you at that first the time that I was in. Right. Because it it was like, I mean, it was kind of everyone was in that program for a while. Yeah, no, I think I was in the second batch of people. Second round. Mm-hmm. But everybody was affiliated and kind of and knew each other because they had knew each other before or had gone a little bit earlier. But it wasn't that much earlier. It's just like. Yeah. A year earlier or something. Two right, years right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Which seemed like a decade back then. Yeah. And then, yeah. So, yeah, to get from point A to point B is not a straight line. You know, it's not a linear yeah. process. No. And we had the luxury of not having fentanyl and everything that we were doing. And the, it just feels like the threat of losing your life, of course, was always there. Of course, you know. Mm-hmm. Shooting heroin is associated with death, of course, as we talked about last time. We both know a lot of people affected by that. But also now it's just so much more acute and so much more imminent. Yeah. Yeah. Imminent. And I mean, 
I don't want to sound like some boomer who learns everything by small articles on the internet, but it sounds like <laughs> fentanyl's in a lot of things that are not opiates, right? Like pressed ah, yeah. Xanax pills. And mm-hmm. so it just feels like it could be way more accidental. Like not, I'm not even trying to be on opiates and I've taken fentanyl accidentally. And what do you make of that, Janet? What do you think? I mean, why? I keep thinking, well, so from a drug selling perspective, <laughs> why would people who are selling these manufacturing homemade pills of any type, whether it's Xanax or even oxys or whatever, homemade pressed pills, why in the world would you put fentanyl in it that is going to potentially kill your client base? Mm-hmm. I mean, the dark, the dark fact of at least opiate addicts is, and this is my personal experience. If you find out, if you find out someone OD'd, you're like, where did they get their heroin, right? Because I want that heroin because it's strong, right? And I, and nobody, I don't think anybody thinks that they're gonna be the one that dies. Right. Like I just want to get very high. And so like your drugs are going to sell better if they're very strong. That's just the dark truth. Right. Of, Mm. I mean, it's, I mean, fentanyl and a benzo high is a very different thing, but I, I imagine it's just like to strengthen the effect. (laughs) Right. Like you will feel very high, you know, if you take this press pill and, you know, maybe, um, maybe I don't know how pressed, pills work really I don't know if you I, what I imagine is you start with you're just stepping on it right you start with the real thing and you just stretch it and you add fentanyl to like kind of make it stronger seeming well and then you start thinking about I mean I'm no chemist but you start thinking about like having an even distribution of the of your the fentanyl you're adding or how strong is the fentanyl or whatever so that yeah. it's not a controllable yeah situation where like oh this much to this much it's just like drop 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 stir 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 and then hope that it's distributed but there might be some from that batch that have tons more than another pill from that same batch so there's no quality control and drug addicts or at least me when I was a drug addict I I would sometimes know that something was not like this isn't going to be good this is like I remember processing black tar heroin that I could, I, I was like, this is part of a Jolly Rancher that's in my heroin right now. Like, I know that this is not what it's supposed to be, Mm -hmm. but I'm like crossing my fingers and hoping that it's enough of what it's supposed to be. (laughs) Right. It's not like, it's not like you're in the, you're in the position to be discriminating. Right. I mean, you're like, Oh, this, the heroin smells like coffee today. I wonder. Right. I guess it's we very know it's Folgers today. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Like we're just not discriminating. So if you're in that position where taking drugs is going to give you some relief from your life that feels more painful than a life of potentially overdosing, like you're going to take it, even if of it's course. sketchy. Well, especially when you're sick, you're dope sick, yeah. and right. you just have to take the risk of course you're just cross, you're crossing your fingers right yeah. cross your fingers i hope mm-hmm. it's okay i hope we don't die yeah just like sharing needles yeah, yeah. having unprotected sex yeah everybody yeah. it's a calculated risk but when you're in that state you can't you're not doing the calculations no i wasn't able to ever really do the calculations i mean it's just like okay that is there's like a enough like well it probably won't happen to me and just luck 
you know, just luck. And really, I got to the point where I was just like, so what if it does? Yeah, for sure. Right. I'm not trying to die, but I'm not really in love with the idea of continuing to live. So let the chips fall where they may and whatever. And that that year or two years that I was living in that recording studio, this was right about 89 or 90. I remember certain people coming to that place that, that died in 90. So it was somewhere around that period of time that like people were overdosing every other weekend. I did CPR, CPR and called paramedics on nine people in six months, right? Like different, different people. Twice it was the same person, right? Like we were just dropping out all the time. And I think that was just happening kind of citywide. Like people were just falling out. Yeah, it happened to Fun Bunny a a few times. I mean, now that you mention it, I had to learn how to do that stuff, which talking about it now seems so bizarre. But at the time, it was just perfectly normal. This is a thing that you may have to do. Yeah. And we all kind of talked about or had seen people do it or something. And I think that's why I was so surprised when Andy Wood died, because like, oh, people. Well, yeah, you die, but you get brought back. But you get brought. Right. Right. But you're right about the you're right about doing about doing dope. You know, Fun Bunny, you know, I found him unresponsive, brought him back, you know, in a very inconvenienced, irritated attitude. Yeah. What do you have to do? CPR and chest compressions and all that. I mean, I remember like when people really first started falling out and I I think I did CPR my first time when I was probably 18 years old and. And the people that I was with, like this gal fell out, turned blue. They put her in a bathtub and were like slapping her face. And I, uh, <laughs> I, I was like, they washed it on Kojak or something, yeah, right? right? Of like how, you, yeah, right. Of like how you, how you handle someone who's overdosing. And they hadn't even called 911 yet. Like, well, because they didn't want to get busted. Back then, everyone was afraid that they would get busted if they called yeah, that's why we know someone that woke up, rolled up in a carpet in a dumpster because <laughs> he dro- fell out and people were scared the cops are going to bust him. So they threw him in the garbage. Right. And that's then he came dark, walking man. in and then he walked in the pub, the tavern the next day that they were sitting at and was just like, hey, wow, that was pretty rude. And they were like, sorry, <laughs> bro, we didn't know <laughs> you were deaf. Oh my gosh, so, so not dark. funny. So not, not funny. funny. I know, I'm sorry. No, I get it. it. But that's the response. Like, what other response can you have? I was packing for this trip I'm going on. And I, you know, I'm like, thinking about how I used to be, uh, you know, like the amount of drugs and the amount of like, lack of awareness. Yeah, paraphernalia, mm. just lack of awareness of mm. what I was doing, or how tenuous life was, or how precious it is, or how like I don't want to hurt anybody like all of that was just like a that was standard operating procedure right of just like whatever and now I'm packing for this trip and I'm like oh I gotta bring aspirin because I'm nervous about the altitude and what if I get a headache but if I bring aspirin I also have to bring Tums because I have a very sensitive stomach I mean I'm like a very different character than I used to be you know funny and so I think about like Looking back on what our life was, it makes me feel like the sadness that I didn't have for us then. 
Yeah. Right now I mm-hmm. have it of just like, my God, my God, that is a terrible way for a person to grow up. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, you and just sad. physically, just physically not ha- just really not honoring, you know, my physical form and almost kind of the opposite. Let me see yeah. if I can do as much damage to this form yeah. and see if it can right. survive. It was like a challenge or and to spite myself or something. Yeah. It's like I thought of my I thought of my body as like a rental car. Right? Like it's not it doesn't mean anything to me. It's not mine. I don't own it. I'm not like I'm just borrowing it, which I think like that is kind of how I think about it now as well. Like but now it's like it's the only one I'm ever going to have, right? Like it's, I ha- I treat it really, I mean, I think if we think about the, the AA triangle, which I know we're not an AA podcast or whatever, but we talk about addiction and as a threefold illness of body, mind, and spirit. And, and this period in our lives, like, and I think for women generally, probably in and outside of addiction circles, right? thinking about your body is at best, I ignore it, right? I don't even think about right. it. The best thought I ever have about it is, is I, to ignore is I it. Don't. Yeah. And at worst, I hate it. Yeah. Right. I, I hate how it looks. I hate how it feels. I hate how, right. I hate its size. I hate it. You know, I hate all these different things about it. I spend so much money on trying to change its appearance or how it feels or, and I think like, that to me today is just feels really sad. Right. Yeah. I look at my, I look at my daughter and I'm like, man, she's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life. And I often hear people say like, Oh, you look a lot like her. And I'm like that when I was her age, I did not feel about myself the way she feels about herself. And of course, I don't know that the inside of her heart, right. I, I know what she tells me and I know how, what it seems like, but she has way more confidence that I, and way more like autonomy and like pride and. Well, I will say, good job, mom. You know, I mean, that doesn't happen in a vacuum. I mean, as much credit as we can take for yeah, trying, right. you know, I, right. I, I believe children are their own entity the moment they arrive here and they are of the universe and of the greater consciousness of all of everything. But yeah. I think for a lot of women, I see them pass down their self, their, I don't, God, I don't even know what the right non-offensive word to say here is, but to pass on their own trauma, their own, their own like issues. Right. Or just like body stuff and self-esteem. Yeah. But yeah, so good job on that, that you didn't, whatever was going on with you, you know, body-wise or your own thoughts about yourself, that you didn't, those didn't roll down to the next generation. Yeah, at least it did in a, in what I hope is like a diminished level sure. than what I had it. And I, I mean, I don't know if I take credit for that as much as just like, I do believe, and even more like with Gen Z's and millennials, like there is so much more female empowerment than what we grew up in. Right. Like, yeah. so the, the culture raised her to have that too. Right. Like mm-hmm. she, she, they are in a time where things are different, where women have right. way more power and esteem, even though it's still like not enough and still like, 
but they're they're way better at talking about just physicality than we were or well let's get into that what was your what are your memories of your self image or your self awareness as a kid and what was the environment like was there mm. you know a lot of positive self talk coming from your mom in your house was there encouragement about feeling being yourself and self-acceptance and yeah um okay so here we go this is like this is four years of trauma therapy you know my tweakopedia research on what love actually is my shamanistic yeah shamanistic healing which we'll talk about those because those i probably got more healing out of those than i have most other Mm-hmm. methods besides trauma therapy but so this is coming from a perspective that's like I've done a lot of healing I've tried to do I've done a lot of healing to even like understand that culture because it's very my family system is very confusing because on the outside it looks fine and and I, like I could probably bring you to my house for Thanksgiving and you would say I like your parents right? Your sister's cool, right? Like you could see it. I mean, I don't think that would happen for you. You, you know all about it, but, but, (laughs) but any, like most people, they wouldn't see it, right? They wouldn't see it. And that might be true for a lot of families, right? Because they're like, your dad was a college professor. Yeah. Your mom had an antique store or, yeah. yeah. Yep. She had an antique store. We had a nice house in, you know, the Broadview neighborhood in Seattle, my dad, you know, worked every day. My mom was kind of a mix between a stay-at-home mom and a shop owner. We had, we each had our own bedrooms, right? Like on the outside. You were cared for. Right. Okay. So here's where we get into it, right? Like I've read a book recently called All About Love. That's by this author, Bell Hooks, who, you know, is just like a national treasure. I think every human being should read this book. It's I mean, but you got to be ready for it because it's going to sure. blow your mind and not everybody wants their mind blown. Right? right. So that's true. But I think if you're, if you like, if you heard someone say, Oh, read this book and you got that book and started reading it and you weren't ready, I think you would just not understand just put what it they down. were talking about. Right. Yeah. You yeah. would just move yeah. on. So it's not going to be harmful to anybody to get a new definition of that. Love doesn't contain abuse basically. Right. Yes. So cool. essentially her theory, her thesis is that Love contains, there are seven ingredients. I don't know if I could list them off the top of my head, but there are seven ingredients to a loving relationship. And that care, commitment, respect, recognition, open and honest communication, affection, those are some of them, right? Mm-hmm. So so her she goes on to say that if you were raised in a family that had care, that you were cared for, meaning like, your needs were met, right? I had my own bedroom. I had food in the refrigerator. And so my parents cared for me and my parents were committed to me in that they were going to continue to care for me as long as they needed to, as long as they had to. So I had a couple ingredients, but we did not have affection. We did not have recognition. We did not have honest, open communication. We did not have, you know, my my father was an alcoholic. What about, I mean, 
The definition of nurturing, would you say, is close is close to that also. Like, nur- what is nurturing? I mean, would the would that be one of the components in the definition of love? Or it isn't. Is, let me no. let me get you. Nurture, I think, is probably closest to care. Yeah. I feel like this is a conversation that is happening in more places than just in our house. A lot of people are reading this book. A lot of people are talking about, and myself included, you know, I always thought that trauma meant only if I was physically assaulted or if I saw something really extreme in front of my face, like someone being murdered or something like that, or sexual assault, I thought trauma meant something very, very extreme. So a few years ago, when we started, you know, learning this stuff and exploring this new healing idea, only then did I allow myself to acknowledge that I had experienced trauma in my Mm -hmm. life, in my childhood of the stuff that you're talking about. Yeah, I I always had clothes, but Mm -hmm. I didn't have the emotional investment or nurturing I didn't have adults that I talked to openly and honestly or that talked to me openly and honestly. As a matter of fact, I lived with people that denied reality. And I find I find that that is the thing that's a common thread around people among people our age. And I'm not trying to put any blame or shame on anyone's parents or anyone's parenting style. Everybody did the best they could with the cards they were dealt from their parents. Mm -hmm. As we know, this is generational training. And my my mom was trained, I think her generation, maybe your mom, too, but you don't pick up a crying baby. And to me, right. that's like the beginning of trauma. That's emotional right. neglect. And some old white guy probably yeah. told women they're going to turn out to be a pansy if you pick right. them up when they're crying. Right. So here we are. Yeah. They need to learn how to self-soothe. Right? Yeah, you like, got to toughen them up. Yeah, you know, clearly right. infants are trying to manipulate you right. by crying. Them. So yeah. you have to make them tough. So here, here are the, here's the ingredients. She says, to truly love, we must learn to mix various ingredients. Care, affection, recognition, respect, commitment, and trust, as well as honest and open communication. Mm-hmm. She goes on to say that if you had some of those, and you also had, like, neglect and verbal abuse or reality denying or physical abuse, that that, that, that that's not... You can't call that a loving relationship, right? Which is really intense to hear, right? It's it's yeah. like, okay, under this framework, the relationship with my family was not a was not love. It was care and commitment. They did a good job at that. But my it seemed like, and it still sometimes feels this way, is there was a lot of effort put into re- sort of like the refusal or rejection of being vulnerable in any way. Right. So so my family has a hard time about talking about the truth. Right. We would rather talk around it or talk about anything else. But so my father, bless his heart, he's one of my favorite people in the world. But he's a he has struggled with with alcoholism, you know, in and out and has never gone to any kind of support community, likely never will. And there would be times where dad was passed out on the kitchen floor and mom was stepping over him to make dinner and we would not talk about it. Right. Like he was, (laughs) you just, you just pretended like through a thousand tiny social cues. Right. I just learned that we don't talk about things that are hard. Right. And so 
like the only type of intervention on my drug use that my parents were able to pull off was one time my mom found my leather jacket and in the like pistol pocket, there was a bunch of syringes. And I don't know why she was in my jacket or, or what, but she found the syringes and I came home and they were on the kitchen counter. Right. Just like on the kitchen counter, as in like a statement of, I found these, I see, I know that they're here. I know what you're up to. And, and that was just in the air. Right. We, we, we've seen (laughs) you. We will never discuss this ever. We never discussed it ever. (laughs) Can you imagine? I, I mean, I can't, I can't. And so, right. I've gone, I've gone through one of the first sessions I met with my therapist, she made it very, she told me the story of that she had, she was referred to help a person who, whose his wife had called her and said, like, I, I believe my, my husband was a soldier in Afghanistan. I believe he's suffering from PTSD. I would like you to help him. She meets the guy. She starts doing therapy and like EMDR with him. And what they discover is that he did have PTSD, but it was not from the war. It was from his childhood. Right. Right. So like that, like gave me a lot of, because I had the same thing of like, well, I mean, I, I also have the, the like credentials that I thought were required. Right. I was also like, I was, I was almost murdered. Right. Like that, that is an event that happened in my life. But I didn't, I was like, that. Nah, I kind of brought that one on myself. Yeah, that so. happens to everyone. I mean, that happens, happens to everyone. It's a dangerous job. It's a dangerous yeah. job. Right. So I, ha- I had that. I've had, you know, my husband die in 2008. My boyfriend die in 2017. I had what I, you know, what looking at them now seemed like, oh yeah, that's qualifies. But, but I wouldn't have ever told you that I was someone who suffered from trauma because I'd never been kidnapped. I didn't suffer physical abuse from my family. I was never, right. I was never in war. I thought you had to have these really monumental, like almost right. like new, newspaper article levels of trauma to qualify. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and my stuff was not going to qualify except that I was walking around. Like it felt like I was on the edge of a building and someone had their hand on my back, ready to push me off. And that was just my normal state i just it's felt fight or like flight. you were just walking around in survival mode fight or flight yeah, flee yeah. fawn yeah absolutely just on the edge just, of yeah just yeah. jangled just absolutely jangled all the time activated right like i'm ready to run at any time i would like to create a a metaphor i'm going to try to create a janet metaphor of the the ingredients that bell hooks tells us make up love and some and what and the ingredients that you're saying you felt like you got from your parents as a kid there was two you know two ingredients there was care and commitment commitment so let's let's look at love like a soup Mm -hmm. so for the soup to be very delicious and long-lasting and nutritional and and complete it has all the ingredients so you got two of the ingredients. So it's not that it wasn't love. It w- it's not that it wasn't soup. It was just a very like skimpy yeah. soup. It was still love. It just didn't have all the components in it to make you a fully formed 
healthy, whole, spiritually, emotionally sound person to launch into the world. So yeah. it gave you the soup that they had available. Yeah, they, they did. They didn't have the, all the ingredients in it that makes us be able to be fully realized people. It's a very hard pill to swallow that Bell Hooks is feeding us because what she would actually say is that that's not, that can't be true. Right, exactly. That you you have to have, like, it's not love unless you have all the ingredients. And and that that is very hard for us because because I care about respecting my parents and I I want them to know, like, I'm not holding a grudge, right? Right. I, I don't want it to feel like I'm saying you didn't do well enough. Right. But but she says that, like, neglect and love can't coexist. Right. They just can't. That's not what it is. Then it's something else. You have something else you have. Right. For us to call it a soup is generous. Right. Right. That's exactly. Yeah. Just to just to be generous, to let everyone off the hook, but also to to switch it from. They didn't, you know, they didn't love me because I wasn't lovable to they couldn't love me. They didn't have it efficiently because they just couldn't do it. They couldn't do they were not capable of supplying the correct ingredients. So to me, we can I don't know the the fact of saying like that it doesn't qualify as love at all. It seems a little bit hard, a little bit cruel, because I do believe that the people that gave birth to me would say that they love me very much. Mm-hmm. Although, yeah, of I'm uh, totally on board. And I believe, you know, I was had the, a very similar experience as a kid. But I don't know that I ever... It didn't occur to me in my little kid mind, one way or the other, if I felt loved or unloved. But I knew that I felt afraid. I knew that I didn't right. feel safe and I didn't right. feel comfortable... No, it's confusing. It's very confusing. confusing. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. In 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 all the ways where my family decided that we were not going to talk about the truth, that we were going to talk around it. Like I had to learn those, like over time. And and you know, I, I will say it about me today is I I can't sit in a room and talk like I'm terrible at small talk. It's a joke with me and other people of like when the small talk starts, I just peel out, right? Like I'm just not, I'm not here for it. I cannot, I can't talk about the weather for very long. I can't talk about what we're gonna do for dinner, right? I just like it drives me insane. Oh gosh, yeah, it's a deep well. I mean, it, this is deep. This is deep stuff, and this is this is what I'm into. I mean, this is what we've been talking about and doing, and bringing all this to the surface and having conversations around this and. Mm-hmm talking to our kids about it, you know, and mm-hmm. trying to see where we maybe weren't providing all the ingredients and to try yeah, to, right. you know. And the beautiful thing is you can start to provide yourself with all of that stuff and then do all these practice mm-hmm. relationships mm-hmm. with your friends and with your, you know, and start to try to bring this into the day-to-day interactions. And it's pretty wild. It's hard to gauge what level people are going to be able to tolerate of truth telling or fact finding or whatever, you know, as we've seen of like, Hey, let's, you know, dig into the truth about ourselves and our family system. You know, a lot of people are like, no, thank you. I prefer to keep my head in the sand. 
I don't want to, you know, the the idea of seeing the truth is, as we know, much scarier than actually. I mean, I, I'll say like I'm only probably like 52 percent into it. Right. I'm a little bit more into it than I am not because <laughs> because what I've found is it's there's a lot of sadness left over. Right. There's I have sadness for little me who was like learning about how not to trust her intuition at the age of three. Right. Like, I, you know, of like. We don't talk about yeah. that. We're not we don't acknowledge things that are I've never seen my parents touch each other. Right? I've never seen any amount of affection between them. We were not given that, right? Like we do not say I love you. They're from like staunch New England families, right? Like you just don't talk about it. Talking about your problems is some admission of weakness and you we just don't do it. We were not raised in a culture where that was something, the way you handled anything. Right. So your whole family is a failure. If anyone outside the family senses that there might be a person with any type of problem in your family, then you've well, we just don't shame talk about it. And yeah. Banishment. We just don't talk about yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. And so, I mean, I, I'm like, I want to know like what's going on in your heart. Like, let's talk about the truth. I love it. Right. I want, that's the only conversation I ever want to have is like, how does it feel on the inside? You know, because I spent 50 years of my life not able to talk about that. Right. Because I could not, it wasn't, Mm -hmm. that's not what we were raised to do, but also because it took me, it's a long way back. It's a long way back when it was never okay for you to talk about how you're how you feel to be able to like no. I thought I had like maybe two or three emotions when I got sober in 2011, right? I, like I was like angry. <laughs> yeah. Hunger? <laughs> right? Is hunger does hunger count cuz I I know that one. But I mean, I don't is think it is emotion. It's a, it's a physical feeling, but like I couldn't tell the difference. Right. And so it's been a it's a long way back to recognizing like I feel lonely. I feel sad. I feel frustrated. I feel proud. And, you know, s- still to this day, I could take any of those feelings and say, you know, want to get that feedback from my family and say, hey, I got a new, a new position at work. And what I would get back would be, would be a, would be a shutdown. It would be a rebuke. Right. Right. Like, oh, why are you working so much? Or you're probably not getting paid enough or just something to diminish the. I have no idea what your job even is. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's, that sounds good, I guess. Right. That's, that is the feedback I get from my family. That's good i guess yeah so it just has become i mean like out of the out of the sort of like black lake of denial right i've come crawling out and that's all i want to talk about is like how to survive that how to like get back in touch with your feelings how to correct your like broken chakra systems how to be with people in a deep and engaging way Right. I I want that's all I want to do now. Well, and there's so much in every in every conversation, you know, that I have with someone else about this, what we're talking about here, it makes it less it makes the impact 
maybe for them, but for me, for sure, it, you know, continues to just shine a light and just like little grain by little grain or little, you know, piece by piece or, you know, chipping away at the, the stuff inside of there for me. So I think even if, you know, for lack of a better term, even if you're farther along in the process of this recognition and healing and whatever than someone else that you're talking to, I think still sharing your experience with the other person continues to propel you forward also, because in, in talking about the stuff with someone else, it just continues to shine more light down in that basement full of cement and mud and, and old, old, mm-hmm. old, 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 old stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think the continuing conversations about it are always going to illuminate something, even if I'm talking to someone who isn't, hasn't been working on this for as long as. What, the way I think of it is the light, the light always wins. Right. When you open the door to a dark room, the light goes into the dark room. The dark doesn't spill out. Right. Light always clears the the darkness. And so to me, like the way we the way we heal is we shine the light on it. We bring it to the surface and we talk about it. And and if I don't do that, if I'm like, nope, I'm not going to bring it up. I'm going to I'm going to push it down and to the left and I'm going to act as if it doesn't hurt me anymore and I'm shutting the door on it and I've I've processed it I've come to terms with it I've it's just down subterranean what my experience is and is that that those old beliefs and old judgments and old thought patterns still are making decisions for you and you don't have agency you don't have awareness to know that that's happening right it's just like well I don't like parties well I don't like going out with friends well I don't I don't like you know I'm I and what it is is I'm scared I'm scared that they're not gonna like me I'm scared that I'm not gonna get my needs met by other people so what I tell myself is that I just don't like those kind of things and I just want full access I just want full agency I want to be able to make choices that are not based in sub subterranean fear well and also it's the the conscious, I want to make a make decisions from my consciousness instead of this old, yeah, you know, against my will, like propelling me to do something that consciously I would not choose for myself, but still like, oh, yeah, this narcissistic dude who's full of rage and <laughs> I'm not going to go any further, but yeah, well, now I'm in this relationship again. Like, I right. don't want this, but something inside me is propelling me. That's what right. happens is you will recreate the traumas over and over and over because that's what you know, right? We just recreate. It's like, mm-hmm. I think of the, sh- the chakras as, as these recording discs, right? They're recording and they record the injuries. And then those injuries get replayed re- because that's what I think of love, right? I think love is care and commitment. And so if I like, okay, I, I am there every day and I, and I take care of you, that's a loving relationship, but we don't right? no affection, no recognition, right? Either way, no honest communication. Now I've recreated it. And, and what I can say is until I recognize that, like those were the relationships I was in. God love them all, right? God love them all. I don't, I, God all bless. of them, I've been very instructive teachers to me. 
I don't want to yeah. give anybody the impression that I did not, you know, to the best of my ability, love those people. But it was from this and broke, vice versa, right? You know, right? But vice it was, versa. but it was more of like my wounds and your wounds hooked to each other in a way that feels like a relationship that I know and understand and can predict. And until those things, and and it's going to be probably this process through the rest of my life, or like exposed to the light, right? Like we bring them to the surface and say, "Wow, man." I here's here's how I'm thinking of it going through with my family of origin of like my needs weren't met in the way that maybe me specifically needed them to be met. My needs weren't met. We didn't talk about the truth. We didn't talk about our feelings. We didn't show affection. We didn't show recognition. My needs weren't met. Some scars and traumas were started then. And as I like bring that into the light what I what I I have to go through all the steps of that of like sadness of forgiveness of right like, grief and the, of like understanding in my own like okay I I can forgive them to this level and then I, and then there's a higher frequency of like it wasn't specifically my family but it was the culture of family that that where those wounds came from right because likely they had them too and likely their parents had them too and you know i i very much believe that everyone was doing the best they could with the tools they had but if we deny if i continue the habit or the culture of reality denying and i said and the truth is is that i was a very unhappy very scared kid who you know, I had undiagnosed ADHD. I had the house that I grew up in was a, was a scary house and that my parents were not, they were kind of hoarders and like we had bugs, right? Like, <laughs> right? Like that. We had bugs. We had bugs. And that I can get to the side of like, that wasn't okay. It wasn't okay. Yeah. Right. right and to, right. like to honor that little girl that she deserved better. And she wasn't given that. If I act like that's not true, what I join is the ranks of the reality deniers. Mm -hmm. And then me feeling sad because I was neglected in the ways that I was neglected is, is inappropriate, right? Like so much time has passed. You shouldn't feel that anyway at that. Right. But if you don't feel it, it goes subterranean. And, mm -hmm. and you'll make decisions from that wound. Yeah. It's going to, it's going to leak out. It's always going to leak out. So I just want agency. I don't, I'm not trying to blame anybody. I'm not trying to put responsibility yeah. on anybody, but I want agency. Right. Yeah. I'm going to be free from the, this dragon that's, you know, <laughs> dragging me around. Yeah. Right. And making decisions that end up causing me a lot of suffering. Yeah. And, and not just me. Right. Right. Not yeah, probably. Me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, because I want to be I want to role model healthy relationships for my kids. Right. If I keep making that same decision, my kids are learning. They're they're watching. Right. Whether I you know, whether I want them to or not. Right. But I don't want to be I don't I want them to know. I want them to have full access. Right. I want them to be in relationships where they have everything. Yeah, it's interesting. I was having a conversation with my son the other day, who is 28. 
about, I mean, we talk about this stuff. We talk about relationships. We talk about emotional access. We talk about respecting or, you know, having a disagreement with your partner and no one raises their voice and they, and listening to the other person. I mean, we talk about this stuff and I'm like, it's just so, so incredible. Like you said earlier, like that people this age are, seem to have the ability to be so much more advanced emotionally than people. Well, maybe people our age were at that time. We, we were that age. They just weren't. Well, the, I do think there is an I think my there, friends were. Yeah, yeah. There is an awakening. Like there is an yeah. awakening happening. Right. There is. If you just think about the difference between our parents and our kids. Right. Just, that's just one generation separated. There is. They are yeah. way. They have way more access mm-hmm. to vulnerability. I feel like it's cool. I've. I've felt for a long time like I'm the stopping point of that generational trauma like I've made the decision to turn to get to a safe place turn and face it and just you know gather information and start the start the healing so the fact that you know we endured what we endured as far as you know childhoods drug stuff you know getting sober you know like you said enduring deaths and tragedies and on and on to get to have the opportunity to get to this place in life at this age and have this the yearning to continue to heal and get the and get more information and have conversations about it pass it on to our kids I mean I guess what I'm trying to say is to me it was it's worth I mean you know knock on wood that we survived all of it but if we get to be here and save our kids from having to repeat this generational I mean I'm convinced that I probably wouldn't have lived to be this age but let's just say we had lived to be this age without having gotten sober what would our kids lives look like today you know with that type of you know rolling it down one more generation so I guess what I'm saying is thank god it didn't have to roll down all the way yeah. One more generation onto them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, and I will say my family was a consistent force of like low level neglect. Right. And the way I have parented has been, well, the way that my kids were raised were these like most of my life has been as a sober person with them. Right. Most of their experience of me has been a sober person, but I have these like, shotgun blast they have these shotgun blasts of trauma through their lives right like the loss of their father the you know they knew quite a few friends of ours that died suddenly of drug overdoses they have had several of their own friends die of drug overdoses they have had you know my family has had an impact on my children right even maybe not through me but through them Right. Right. Like I don't think my kids have made it out without any. Right. And they have their own. But it's like, sure, the access to it is like it's way more. They have. There isn't like a moratorium about talking about it. Right. Right. They're allowed to talk about it. They might not want to, but they're allowed. Right. And again, the you know, the traumatic memories or difficult times or whatever challenges you know you've gone through as a human being since they've been alive or whatever of course they have that in their you know information system or their memory or whatever but 
to be able to look at that person today and see she's changed. She's changing. She's trying to evolve. She's trying to, you know, not be that same thing anymore. I mean, it'd be interesting. We should have your kids on the podcast and talk to them as if they'd be willing. But but just like what what must that be like for those people that are now adults, you know, to see their mom continuing to evolve and to become more mindful and awakened and helpful and useful and loving and kind and healed healed yeah you know that's a it is an ongoing process it is you know not just one conversation but just like the living act of I'm continuing to heal myself which as we know when I work on myself I improve the quality of everyone's life around me yeah so that has to that has to be very true for and I, yeah, and I hold that that that's also true for my parents, right? My parents are both still alive, right? Like, mm-hmm. the, is it true that the work that I do on my on right? I genuinely believe that there's one good, and for me to do what's good for me is good for the universe, and so you know by extension it is me to do to live to my code, right? To live in within my morals to do the right thing for me is the right thing for them. But it's an, it's an example, right? I have a tightness about even talking about it in a way where they might be able to hear it because I'm like, I don't want them to think that I hold them responsible or that I don't love them or that I, you know, I don't want that them to feel bad about how I talk about it. Right. But I have to believe that it, it is the right thing to do. Even if it hurts their feelings, it's, the right thing to do. Yeah. And also even just knowing that they would hear, I mean, for me thinking about my parents listening to this, which I know they're not going to, to hear just the pain that I lived in or during the, during the drug years or other years going through as just as, you know, as dicey as it was to know that your child was living that way has to be heartbreaking to hear, no matter how disconnected or disassociated you are from your own emotions. Yeah. It's got to be shocking, to say the least. Yeah. But also maybe something more than just shocking. Yeah, well, yeah. It might be sad. It might be... Well, it might be embarrassing. It might be embarrassing, (laughs) right, yeah. What are people going to think if they know that Janet was Seattle's premier professional? No drug dealer yeah well okay we went down we went down there and talked about that stuff i mean i'm sure as everyone can tell as you and i know we can talk about this forever it's this is the content that we are living in and doing and it's so fascinating to me i love talking about this stuff yeah i think it's important so we're still at the same place chronologically in both of our lives yep yep we'll pick it up from the Dr. Clean. Yep, from Dr. Dr. Clean. Clean. (laughs) That's the best name for an NA meeting in a hospital Mm -hmm. at that time. Yep. Just perfection. We might have to revive it. We might have to resuscitate (laughs) (laughs) CPR. I, I will say, though, to answer that question, I didn't do, like, any kind of formal CPR on anyone ever. I think I just smacked him and yelled at him probably. You know, that whole, like, mm-hmm. yeah. I might have done some whatever. I didn't. I'm not the, a... The Kojak. I have taken... 
I have taken CPR since then, but I don't even want to tell you what I did when that person was not uh, responsive. It wasn't kind and it wasn't loving, but he's alive today. <laughs> Let's just say that. So it, it was effective. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, have a great trip. Right, I will you. miss you while you're gone. And thank you for sharing your time and for your honesty and your wisdom and your everything. Episode two in the books. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Ep two. What's up? Yeah. Awesome. I will see you again soon. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye.